Hello and welcome to She's Creative with me, Claire Hodgson. Each episode, I chat to a different woman or non-binary person who works within the creative industries and discover how they turned creativity into a career. Thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast so far. If you've been enjoying it, I would love it if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps boost the podcast in the charts. My guest on this episode is Ellie Bell. Ellie is a freelance journalist and communications consultant. They have written for publications such as Teen Vogue, Bitch Media, Playboy and Refinery29. Ellie has also consulted organisations focused on human rights. The main focus of their writing is social change and justice. Welcome Ellie. Hi, thank you so much for making time to talk to me. I'm so excited. No problem at all. Um, just to start things off, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for a living? That is a complicated question, but simply put, uh, I grew up moving around a lot. I moved 27 times in my life, wow. which is a lot given that I'm only almost 27 years old. I have not even reached my 30s, but I was born in Massachusetts and I have lived everywhere from Massachusetts to India to Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. to New York, where I am now. Um, And my mother, uh, and just for context, I am estranged from my birth parents, but my mother um, was an English teacher and my father was a professional videographer and filmmaker. Cool. And when did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? Oh, God. Um, I was a kid. I grew up writing because of my mom. I grew up helping her grade her students' papers. Um, I think I resented writing a lot when I was young because it felt like something I was supposed to do as opposed to something I loved to do. I knew that I was good at it and I knew that I got praise for it, but it felt something I was being, it felt like something I was being forced to do. And Mm -hmm. that was hard. Um, But uh, I remember the first time that I like really enjoyed journalism and felt passionate about it. I was like 11 years old. Um, I was a super nerd as a kid, the same way that I am now. And I, I like went to summer school for fun. I did not want to be at home. I did not want to be hanging out with people during the summer when school wasn't in session. I just wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. And I was living in Arizona at the time. And I went, I was, going to summer school in, I think like sixth grade. I can't remember if it, I think it was the summer before sixth grade. And there was like a class that I was in and there was a volunteer opportunity to create the like summer newspaper for the summer school for all the kids who were attending. And I immediately jumped at it. And it was like kind of this nuts situation where the teacher would come in in the mornings on like weekends, I think, and it would be like 7 a.m. And we would come in and I would learn how to use like these programs. I can't remember what it was. It could have been InDesign or some other program like that. 
but I would come in at 7 a.m. and I would work on this paper and I would come up with things to write about and I would interview other students, other kids. And my payment would be like hash browns from McDonald's, <laughs> which I loved because I love potatoes that I always have. Um, and that felt like fair payment to me, which I think says a lot about who I am as a person. But so I started with that and I don't really remember that much about it. I just remember really loving it. And mm. I remember being obsessed with the movie 13 going on 30. Mm-hmm. Love that yeah. Film. yeah. One of my favorite movies. So I was obsessed with that movie and how to lose a guy in 10 days. Mm-hmm. And both of these are movies based on like media people in New York working at like fancy magazines, writing about things that they care about. And 13 going on 30, especially because it is about like a 13 year old girl in the body of a 30 year old who has this dream to be like in media and to, to, to be like a magazine writer or journalist. Like I was just so obsessed with that movie and I can't remember when it came out exactly. uh, But it, it came out when I was a kid and I just remember watching it all the time. And it's still one of my favorite movies to watch when I'm like having a hard week or something, or I need mm-hmm. to be reminded why I love doing what I do. And it sounds so cheesy, but honestly, like I watched that movie and I still feel this every time I watch it, that I just felt like I really resonated with the message that magazines and writing and media are supposed to be about making people feel seen and heard and telling the stories of the people around you and using your platform as a vehicle to help other people who don't have that platform to tell their stories. And that's what I got from it as like a child. Mm -hmm. And I say that to some people now and they're like, wow, you got all that from that like silly (laughs) new about you know media and I'm like yeah it's not just a silly movie I'm very passionate about like pop culture critique and like quote-unquote like silly like girly movies or whatever like rom-coms and stuff um also Mark Ruffalo in that movie (laughs) so so hot I love Mark Ruffalo I feel I identify with him in so many ways I love that movie but so that's what I got from that movie and that was around the same time that I was doing this um like summer school thing, I think. And so I just kept thinking about that movie. It was in the back of my head. And then when I was in middle school, I like really took a break from writing. I didn't like it very much. Uh, I was going through a really tumultuous time in my life. We moved again. We moved all over. I was having a hard time. I think I really resented writing. When I went to high school, I joined the student newspaper. Um, I was at a high school in Los Angeles and it it's still an award-winning newspaper. It's a great newspaper. I don't know who the staff is now, but it was a great newspaper then. And um, first I started by taking photos because I'd done, I've done photography all my life. And then I started writing for it. And then I started editing. And then by my senior year, by my junior year, I had become I don't remember, maybe the opinion or features editor. And by my senior year, I was the editor-in-chief or co-editor-in-chief with someone else. And I just, I loved it so much. And I loved 
getting to interview people and learn about the world. Still one of my favorite things about media and journalism and writing, just having an excuse basically to be nosy and ask people questions and learn about the world. And I really just loved that so much in high school. And I felt enthralled and inspired by journalism competitions and and figuring out how to refine my language and learn how to say things better and more clearly. I loved it so, so much. And, um, and I, yeah, I just remember loving that. And then, you know, I applied um, to, to journalism schools for college. I ended up not majoring in journalism in college. I majored instead in like religion, psychology, and public relations and communications. Um, because I wanted to have other skills that would help mm-hmm. me do other things if I ended up not being in media because I understood that the industry was very kind of screwed yeah. <laughs> even back exactly then. The same. Yeah. Even back then. And, you know, I, I've been a freelance journalist my entire career. Um, but I think it was really from those things as, as a kid. I know that's a super long answer, but it was from those things I, I knew, um, you know, that was not only something that I wanted to put time into honing that skill, but it was something that I am immensely, I was immensely passionate about and have continued to be. Um, and that it's something I'm good at. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So you did public relations and religious studies at Hofstra university. Um, how much do you think that helped further your career in journalism? How do you think those skills help. not at all <laughs> not at all I could have gone somewhere else or I could have not gotten a communications degree at all and it wouldn't have made a difference mm-hmm. um I didn't get any connections in media from my teachers I didn't get any connections from my internships um I got a lot of debt um <laughs> and that's not to say I don't love the school there are things I love about the school but For me personally, going to college was about getting away from difficult situations in my life Mm -hmm. and starting fresh. Um, And so honestly, I mean, I think think definitely that um, taking a lot of religion courses and anthropology and sociology courses and psychology courses and liberal arts courses, all of those things mm-hmm. really did contribute very positively to my perspective and gives me a lot of perspective. Um, but it didn't really provide me with like connections or mm-hmm. any of the standard things that like college is supposed to provide you. Uh, and I, I did everything myself by networking and pitching relentlessly. And I think I would probably be in the same place in my career if I had not majored in communications. <laughs> In the States, how essential do you think it is to go to university to become a journalist? Uh, I would say not at all. Mm -hmm. I would say it's a really archaic, harmful, white supremacist, like institutional Mm -hmm. um, directive and assumption and exploitation of people that says you have to do this in order to be someone in the society and quite honestly, plenty of people I know who are some of the, the people I respect most in journalism never went to J school. I mean, I didn't even go to J school, you know, um, and I didn't have any connections. 
And I understand there is a certain um, privilege for sure going to university or college or grad school or whatever, but I don't really think it's necessary. I think the internet and Twitter especially, for example, have really revolutionized the path by which you get Mm -hmm. to success. And personally, um, you know, obviously my circumstances are very contextual to me and I'm very aware that I occupy certain privileges by default by being a white person. Mm -hmm. Um, and so maybe going to, college or grad school or whatever for journalism is still more necessary for like people of color or black people or indigenous people or people who are like are trying to break through those systems. Whereas I inherently have more privilege, um, like by default. So I am cognizant of that, but I'm asked these types of questions by black journalists and journalists of color who come to me for advice all the time And I always have candid conversations with them about professionalism and degrees. And I just always really stress that people should do things that work for them and actually work for them as opposed to what they feel they need to do or they won't be able to succeed. Um, Because, you know, I, again, I went to school to get away from abusive parents, unfortunately. And I went to school not because I felt like I really wanted to go to college, even though I love learning, but because I needed some kind of avenue and vehicle to get away Mm -hmm. and to move 3,000 miles away. And having almost a full scholarship and then having to work several jobs between three to five jobs at any given time to like put myself through the rest of school and support myself was really hard. Um, And I say this to people all the time, especially when people tell me, oh, why don't you go to grad school? I can't do it again. I don't want to do it again unless I have like a full ride and don't have to worry about money at all and debt. Um, Because, you know, I don't think that I needed it. I think that it was that avenue to get me away. Mm -hmm. I think everyone's circumstances will be different. And I just would say, I think it's really important for anyone who is thinking about going to college or university, especially in America, with the way that the job market is, um, just really thinks about like, why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you want to? Are you doing it because you really think and know and have talked to other people and gotten their perspective, people who have also gone to college or university or grad school? about how it helped them, how it harmed them, what they wish they knew. Have you considered all of these things Mm -hmm. and why are you doing it? Because so many people, especially in America, do take a job or go to a school or, or go down a certain life path, not because they want to, but because capitalism forces us to, and we feel like we don't have any other options. And I think for many people, that's not a good enough reason. And it's more harmful to do that to yourself than to really figure out other ways. And like I said, you know, because of Twitter and other things now, um, there really are so many other avenues to find that success. And I personally just know so many young people, people younger than me 
who now have so many more opportunities that I didn't have when I was their age, when I was 21 or 22 or 23, even, um, even just three years ago, um, because Twitter just really opens doors. You can build relationships with editors and create like a quote unquote brand and have people listen to you and get noticed in ways that I don't really think, you know, I think has made college and university in some ways obsolete for things like media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of what you would learn on the job, you know, before you would, you would learn stuff on the job and now it's more like you're expected to know it before you, you get in. And a lot of the stuff you learn studying journalism isn't even necessarily essential I think like in Scotland there's four-year courses in journalism and so much of that is like filler just to fill up like a full a four-year course I think like absolutely I had the same experience Mm -hmm. I could have finished school in a year yeah yeah I did a year-long master's and I felt like that was kind of the right amount of time and I was I didn't know how people could do the full four years you know, stretching it out. So it was really hard. And now I'm in $70,000 of debt. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that was with a significant amount of scholarship and yeah. me working three to five jobs for four years or five years, actually. Um, so that's my answer. <laughs> when did you get your first byline and when did you start like pitching? Mm-hmm. So I'm not actually sure if my story is unusual or more common, but I actually did ghostwriting um, a little bit in college for blogs and publications before not under my name, mm-hmm. consulting people for like um, communications and PR purposes okay, yeah. before I ever had my own bylines. Um, you know, my first bylines obviously were like middle school and high school in my, yeah. my high school newspaper, but then um, more broadly, like nationally or internationally or whatever. Um, the first time I had a byline that was my own, I think was 2017. So it was like four years ago. Um, and it was, I'm trying to remember. I think, I think that it was a, something that no longer even exists anymore, a website, which isn't that how it always is in media. Um, And it was like a food website that I think is now owned by like food and wine or something. And then my first like real, real byline that was something I was really passionate about was Bust Magazine. Um, And then after that, I started writing for Teen Vogue and my career just kind of took off from there in 2017 and 2018. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you started off, were you just directly pitching editors your ideas? Yeah, I was cold pitching. I didn't really know anyone. Um, I got kind of lucky because in 2017, I made friends with someone who I who's in media um, still and who I had met through Twitter and she was, she's a little bit older than me. I think she's like 30 now. So she's, you know, a few years older than me. Um, and she really kindly, you know, just was my friend. And by virtue of being her friend, we lived in the same neighborhood. Uh, by virtue of being my friend, I would like go to her parties and meet people. And I'm just a naturally very friendly person. 
I'm mm-hmm. a curious person. Um, I'm autistic and I feel like the way that I interact with people, I know the way that I interact with people is very specific to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have a lot of questions about the world and about people and I compliment people and I just kind of say what I think very bluntly. And so um, I think I'm an acquired taste. I know I'm an acquired taste. Mm-hmm. And some people really like that and some people really don't. Um, but I started making a lot of friends um, from like Twitter and by going to parties with media people in 2017. and something I have found is that a lot of people, especially in media, especially in like New York media and in media in America are not nice people. They're not kind. (laughs) They're very, I'm just going to be totally blind. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. It's the same in the UK. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure Mm -hmm. it is. I think it's universal basically because this industry is so cutthroat and because of capitalism and white supremacy and misogyny and, and patriarchy and so many things, so many things we are taught that we are all in competition with each other Mm -hmm. and that we have to be mean and conniving and assholes and clicky and media really is just like sorry to bring up 13 going on 30 again or like (laughs) reference like mean girls or legally blonde just any of those movies where there's there are those really catty people Mm -hmm. who are jerks for no reason like that is just what media is it's like being in high school again it's horrible I think to myself every day I was bullied my entire life in, and in middle school and high school especially, and then in college again, why the hell did I go into an industry <laughs> where I'm not only not paid well, but everyone's so competitive and trying to throw each other under the bus all the time? And so that being said, um, I have always been like this. I have always strived to be kind and empathetic and I'm very earnest. And again, because I'm autistic, I will just, if I think something nice about someone, I'm just going to say it because mm-hmm. why would I not? I don't even have a thought where it's like, like my, that's just how my brain works. And so entering media and making friends with people in media in 2017 and 2018, when I was first starting out, I wasn't even in a position where I wanted my own byline. Um, I had a lot of hesitation around having my own byline because I had escaped my abusive parents and I didn't want them to have any ownership over me and be able to say, that's my child. Look at the incredible things she's doing. That's my child. And I didn't want to be found Mm -hmm. and I knew that it would really put myself at risk. And so I almost didn't want to do it, but I had all of these things that I wanted to say and I knew that I have a skill and I really missed writing and journalism and I had been pitching a little and I made friends with people in media just by virtue of Twitter and meeting people at parties in like the Brooklyn media scene and the New York media scene. And people really liked, some people at least, really liked me because I was just kind Mm -hmm. and 
you know, a good friend and was really interested, like genuinely in them as people, as opposed to media people. Um, and, you know, my advice probably that I always give people is like, just be a, can I curse? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, great. <laughs> my advice for people is always just be a fucking human being. Just be a goddamn human being. Don't be a journalist or like a cutthroat journalist or writer or media person who's trying to like step over people, um, you know? And I think that's one reason that I get along with a lot of people and, and people like me and I get work is because I'm just kind. Mm-hmm. And as simple as that sounds, um, and obviously it's skewed towards the privilege of white people or men or cis people or straight people, you know, I think it's very important to be cognizant of um, those privileges and uh, reasons that you might get more opportunities than other people. But that aside, I have made so many connections and gotten so much work literally just by virtue of being kind Mm -hmm. and thoughtful and turning stories in on time and and having clean copy and proving myself reliable. But honestly, I think that being kind and, and easy to work with has been one of the biggest reasons mm-hmm. that I have gotten jobs. I think it's really interesting that you have brought that up because people don't really talk about, talk about the fact that there are, are a lot of people in the media that aren't very nice and I that's something I've definitely found I feel like usually when I meet someone else who works in journalism I either really get along with them or I really don't like them and it goes either way I feel like it's a certain kind of person they're either they're either quite cutthroat or they're just a genuine really lovely person who likes people and I feel like there doesn't seem to be a lot of in between yeah <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I, totally I feel agree. You. You're not wrong. <laughs> um, so, is that how you start getting shifts at Teen Vogue? So, yeah, kind of. I had made friends with, um, and I hope that she's fine with me putting her on blast. Maybe I just won't say her name because I don't want to like do it without her consent. But yeah, I made fine. friends with um, a person who was pretty big in media at the time, and. I didn't seek her out. I didn't make friends with her because I was like, oh, this is a person who Mm -hmm. is like a good connection. I just, my brain doesn't even think that way because I'm autistic. Um, So I made friends with this person who was really big in media at the time. And she was writing for Teen Vogue and like, I can't remember what outlet, some other big outlets. And just by virtue of like, again, being kind and genuine and not crappy and at this point she had been in media for years and had had some really bad experiences with people and I think coming off that it probably was refreshing that I wasn't like that and Mm -hmm. so yeah so we started being friends and I would talk to her about my work and what I wanted to do and the things I wanted to write but how I didn't have a platform and I wasn't going to get a platform because I didn't have clips and bylines and I just didn't see how I was going to get in on the ground floor And she did something that was so simple and so kind and took such little effort that has informed the way I do everything in my career now. All she did 
was help me get one small byline, put up some blog posts so that I had clips to show editors. And she emailed some editors at Teen Vogue where she had done work for and just introduced me mm-hmm. and said, hey, um, I have this friend. She's really great. She has a lot of good ideas. She just doesn't really have a name. If you're ever looking for someone to cover XYZ topics, she's the person. Reach out to her. Um, nothing came f- from it for quite a while, for like I would say five or six months. Um, and I was a little disappointed, but also kind of expecting that. Um, I'm not, you know, I grew up with a precarious financial situation and moving around a lot and just like difficult life situations and, um, had to work to make my own money a lot of times in high school and obviously in college, you know, like I said, I did three to five jobs at a time and I've never been an entitled person and I've never been a person who thought that getting what I wanted was going to be easy, but I am a person who does not give up and who does not um, lose hope. And so, you know, she did this intro email and I didn't hear back. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when I was having a really hard time in my career and did not have a job and felt like I was floundering and like I, I was like, I am never going to amount to anything. I don't matter. I'm never gonna get in with anyone. I suddenly got an email one morning in like January maybe or early February 2018 from an editor at Teen Vogue who responded to the initial email that my friend had sent and said, hey, we are restructuring at Teen Vogue. We need someone who's going to be like the main health and wellness writer it's not a full-time position. It's not even a part-time position. It's freelance, but this is how much we pay. This is how it will work. You would do two to three stories like every day or every other day or whatever it was. I can't even remember now. Do you, are you interested in doing like a trial? And I mean, obviously I was like, this was my dream. Mm-hmm. My like 13 going on 30 dreams were like <laughs> going off like fireworks in my head. I was like, how is this real? Like, I remember I, I, um, I wrote a journal cause I, I have been journaling my entire life and I'm really good about writing journals. I write journals about every important thing that (laughs) that's happened to me. And so I remember this journal from that day that I just journaled about like how my dreams were coming true. And this was so crazy. But so I emailed back and I was like, yeah, of course I want to do it. I did the trial. They liked me. I kept writing for them. Um, and you know, that is how I got in. And then eventually how I got into other outlets because I had those bylines, um, which I really hate. I hate that you have to get in kind of somewhere big to, for people to take you seriously and for editors to answer your email, like that's bullshit to me. But unfortunately in many ways it, it still is what it is. But, um, you know, I think the lesson that that taught me though, is something that's again, stayed with me my entire career is how simple and kind and effective and how far it can go to just send an intro Mm -hmm. email to an editor and say, hey, I know this person. And especially, you know, my friend did this for me and I'm a white person, albeit like a trans non-binary person 
who is like disabled and I have other, you know, marginalizations, but it is so easy and so important for like white people with privilege in media to do these types of things for like black people, for, for trans people, for, for, you know, black indigenous people of color and, and anyone who is more marginalized or more harmed or Mm -hmm. has a harder time accessing, you know, systems and having their voices heard and getting paid and being treated well in media or having any place in it at all. And so like the lesson that really instilled in me is it's so simple to do that. And I consult other journalists and people who are trying to break into journalism. I usually do that for free for black and indigenous and people of color. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I've, I've, I mentored and, and even just given connections to and helped a lot of people now just by doing that because it can go so far. If I've done good writing for an outlet and an editor likes me, why would I not also, mm-hmm. you know, give my hand to someone else to help them like walk up the stairs or the ladder? And, you know, that's just not how a lot of media is. And we have this scarcity mindset, which is super informed by capitalism, obviously, that there is not room for all of us. And if you help someone else, you're taking away opportunities for yourself. And honestly, I just don't see it that way at all. And that hasn't been my experience at all. I have helped, you know, I don't want to like brag and I usually don't talk about this at all, but I've helped so many people and I'm proud of that. And that is the thing that is like most important to me um, in all of this um, is that is not that I have big bylines. Like my biggest accomplishment in media is not that I have big bylines. Um, it's not, it's not that I have reached a certain level of, of public like notoriety. It's not that I have 14,000 Twitter followers right now, which I think is silly and ridiculous. And I kind of hate it. (laughs) It's literally the most important thing to me. My most important accomplishment that I am the most proud of and honored about is that I've helped other people mm-hmm. get in and tell their stories. When when you were the health and wellness contributor at Teen Vogue, what was that experience like? Like, what was a, a typical day like? Um, I mean, it really varied. If it was a busier day, I might be working on several bigger stories or one bigger story and interviewing sources um, to write a larger feature article. And then sometimes it was really just like syndicating something that like Demi Lovato said about her sexuality, (laughs) Um, you know, so it really just like depends on the day. Um, It's like pretty similar to what I do at Refinery29 now Mm -hmm. as a part-time freelance news writer and feature writer. Um, But it really just depends. There was no like typical day. Sometimes it would be like there was the March for Life or something happening with abortion and it would be a harder day. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I would literally just like watch something about a hot celebrity who said something about her body and like write up 400 words about it, Mm -hmm. which is very how media is a lot of the time. Like, yeah, unless you have great privilege or you have a full-time job in media, a lot of the time you have to write bullshit articles to like pay bills and get bylines yeah absolutely and um so you've you've done other freelance work as well what is your normal pitching process like how do you come up with a story and how do you pitch it 
This is a great question. It's something that people ask me all the time. Um, I'm like chaos personified. <laughs> so I don't really think that my answer is like helpful for anyone else. I always tell people to please not compare their processes to mine because I am truly nuts. Um, but essentially what it comes down to is have a spreadsheet um, on like Google Sheets. Um, and I, it's called my, my like project spreadsheet and I have um, different tabs. I have like what, what month it is, what the project or article title is, what outlet or client it's for, the deadline, the status, as in like, have I pitched it? Have I not pitched it yet? Has it been accepted? Was it rejected? Um, what the rate is and if I've invoiced yet. And it's set up like that. And whenever I think of an article, I will put the title and a little description of it and what outlet or outlets I want to um, pitch to in, you know, the designated space in the right row or column. And, um, and usually I, I just have a lot of ideas, I have ADHD. So my brain is like, I always say, like I, I have too many tabs open in my brain, which is really how it is, but I'm just constantly generating ideas and thinking of things. And I'm constantly like talking to friends or reading discourse on Twitter, which is toxic and horrible. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's really like interesting and sparks, you know, curiosity or inspiration or ideas for me. Um, or I read someone else's article, you know, my ideas come from everywhere, but I'm just a person who naturally, that's how my brain works. And so I will get inspiration for something and think, oh yeah, this, this needs to be an article. And I'll kind of do like a little, I'll write it down like on my phone or somewhere. And then I kind of think about it for like at least a little bit. There have been very few times where I've thought of an idea and immediately pitch it. I spend a lot of time honing my ideas, talking to people, making sure that I'm the person who should be writing it. Um, I think a huge problem for white people, cis people, straight people, men, you know, the list could go on and on, is that when you come from an entitled and privileged position in society, you think that it's your right to be the one centered and the one telling the story all the time. And it's just not true. And sometimes I think of really good article ideas that I just don't need to be the person to write. And I give those ideas to friends mm -hmm. and I give them to other people or I will reach out to, there have been so many times I've reached out to an editor and I've said, Hey, I have this story idea. I think it's great. It doesn't need to be written by me. It needs to be written by a black trans woman. Here are three people that I think you could hire to write this story. And again, it's so simple, but so part of my pitching process and one of the most important parts is really just being thoughtful and, and like intentional and thinking about, do I need to be the person to tell this story? Why? Does it matter if I don't tell this story? What is the effect of telling the story or writing this thing? Um, and then I also talk to people about you know, do you think there's anything that I'm missing from this pitch? Am I missing any perspective? Are there any voices or anything that I'm, I would be leaving out if I didn't talk to them as sources, stuff like that. Um, 
And then I put them all, I put the things that I decide are, are things that I want to work on in my spreadsheet for that month. Like right now I have, um, I think eight or nine, seven, eight or nine. I'm so bad at math. Um, I have, I have like a range of like nine articles. Some have titles, some are just kind of vague notes that I either have pitched and in the process of pitching or want to pitch for my Mm -hmm. work for February. Um, and, and you know, some I have pitched, some I haven't. Um, and I just think really hard about which outlet and which editor it should go to. Um, and then I, and then I reach out to, to editors and then I get it or I don't. And when you're reaching out to editors, how long do you usually leave it before you follow up? You know, how long before you pitch someone else, that kind of thing. Right. That's such a hard question. And I'm not really sure. Again, I think maybe my answer is very specific to me because the thing is that most of the places that I pitch are outlets that I already have relationships with. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time when I write for a new outlet, it is because an editor has reached out to me Um, because they heard about me from someone else or they read my Twitter or they read an article that I wrote, like, you know, and this has happened more and more. the longer I've been in journalism and media, mm-hmm. which I'm still always shocked by. I'm like, oh my God, people know who I am. Most of the time I just work with outlets that I know mm-hmm. and I do less pitching to outlets that I don't know. And so because I'm now pitching editors that I've worked with a lot, like for years, uh, I don't need to follow up. Mm-hmm. Like they will just let me know. They will respond and let me know whether they want it or not. And if they don't, usually I'll follow up within like, a few days if it's a time sensitive story, maybe a week if it's a less or a week or two if it's a less time sensitive story. I don't email on weekends. I mm-hmm. have many friends who are editors and I know how annoying it is for people to constantly like be badgering you. It's like chill. Everyone's inbox is a nightmare. Really think about people other than yourself. You know, editors are people too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I would say. Um, most of the time I don't have to do follow-ups unless I'm somehow pitching a new outlet mm-hmm. that I haven't worked with before. What kind of structure of an email would you say people should use if they're doing a cold pitch with a new editor? Yeah, I mean, I would say what I always do is I do an intro. I say, you know, hi, my name is Ellie. Um, these are the bylines that I have. These are the things that I have written about or am passionate about. And um, then I, you know, after that short little intro, I pitch what the article is. I include like mock, a mock-up title, an article pitch that is somewhere between one and three paragraphs, depending on how long it is and how long for each. Um, I always include and always, you know, when I give people advice, tell people to include, um, you know, talk about why the story is important, why it matters, why people want to read it, why you should be the person to write it, um, what relevant experience you have writing other similar stories or on that topic or in that beat. Um, What else? Um, And then providing some clips or like a link to your website. I would Mm -hmm. say specific clips are better, but definitely a link to your website um, or 
your Twitter if you want to do that. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and the other thing is I always put in, um, these are the sources I would talk to so that the editor knows you have some kind of plan and you've put thought into it and you have some kind of outline and you're not just like, Oh, this is what I want to do. And you haven't thought about it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the feedback that I've always gotten from editors, whether they're editors that I've worked with 20 times or editors that I've worked with never before the feedback that I've always gotten is, Oh, we've gotten a pitch that was similar to this recently, but we rejected it because there just was no plan for who they would talk to, or they didn't know what they were talking about, or there wasn't something concrete and intentional, but you really mapped this out. So yes, you've got it. Like I can't even describe how many times that's happened. And it's a little shocking to me, but I also don't hold it against anyone because it's not something that we're really taught again. Like I literally was never taught how to pitch. Never, ever, ever, Mm -hmm. ever. I cannot emphasize enough how many bad pitches I sent when I was like 21, 22. Horrible pitches, awful pitches. Didn't know what I was doing. Someone should have stopped me. Uh, Like (laughs) I just kept pitching until editors paid attention to me, which I think is also a form of privilege, definitely um, in this industry. But that's advice that I always give to people. Um, Just figure out what you need to be included, including in your emails. If you don't know, reach out to journalists. Mm -hmm. Um, As mean as people are, Twitter is a really great resource. And I think that if you're, for many people at least in media, or for at least an okay portion of people, if you are someone who's trying to break into journalism or get a new byline or something, and you feel like you don't know what you're doing with pitching or something, follow journalists that you admire and writers you admire, genuinely engage with their work tell them when you like an article they wrote and what it meant to you. And then maybe eventually reach out to them and ask for advice. Um, I say all of this specifically because a lot of people reach out to me, like at least a hundred people reach out to me every week. Wow. That's so many. It's a lot. It's a lot. And not everyone is a journalist. Some people want, you know, different things. They want me to retweet something or they want a connection or whatever. Um, And I have to conserve my energy and I just can't answer everyone because I'm a human being. But the people I respond to are the people who treat me like a human being as opposed to a means to an end and have interacted with me before. I've seen them respond to my tweets. I've seen them share my articles. I've seen them say nice things. Um, And that's not like an ego thing. It's just like, it's just fucking rude Mm -hmm. to reach out to someone and treat them like an object that can get you closer to your goal. And it's fucking rude to email or tweet at someone or slide into someone's DMs and be like, hey, I want this thing help me get a byline. Like the people I've helped have been the people who have been like, Hey, I read your article about XYZ and I really loved it because XYZ or I've been following your work for a while and I really admire it. Would you mind giving me some advice or would you mind helping me with a pitch? Those are always the people I say yes to. I mean, I also generally usually say yes to like black indigenous people and people of color. Um, because those are the people who I think I really owe it to 
to help get in places mm-hmm. um, and help use my, my, my platform and my privilege for them. Um, but like, do that. Like, I think so many people don't realize that you can do that or realize what the right way to do it is. And my best piece of advice is engage with people's work genuinely. If you like it, tell them. And then ask them and you have nothing to lose. Either they're going to be an asshole and you're going to find out who's a jerk in media and they're going to be like, no, I don't want to help you, which I think is rare. Most of the time they just won't respond. Or someone will say yes. The thing that I always think and say, one of my affirmations is, if you never ask the question, the answer will always be no. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think with these kind of things, if you do reach out to people, even if you're reaching out to 10 people and, and nine of them don't respond to you, one of them will. Totally. And that's you know? my, my philosophy with pitching too. Yeah, so absolutely. Sometimes I, pitch, sometimes I pitch and I've had weeks where I've pitched 30 articles. Like literally sometimes I just have so many ideas and I'm just like, I'm just going to send out all these articles and see what sticks mm-hmm. and I'll get two articles. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people are really amazed by the number of articles that I do in a certain time period. And they're always like, how? And I'm like, well, I literally didn't sleep this week. And I pitched all of these things, which I would not recommend to anybody. Um, I definitely have like weeks and months where I hardly pitch anything. And then I have Mm -hmm. weeks and months where I'm just like a machine gun. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's my philosophy with reaching out to people. And it's the same philosophy with pitching. You know, if you don't ask the question, the answer will always be no. And if you, if you ask the question, the answer might be yes. And your life could change. And Mm -hmm. certainly two of the things that have changed my life the most have just been asking the question, no matter what the question is, even if it's a really hard and scary and vulnerable question. Um, and being a genuine kind human being, like those two things get you very, very, very far in life. And I can say this definitively as someone who is very far in life from where I came from and where I thought Mm -hmm. I would be. Mm -hmm. You were saying you sometimes pitch loads of places and other weeks you don't pitch any. Do you have like a rough estimate of like your success rate for pitching something? Um, you know what? Let me just refer to my spreadsheet um, <laughs> because I think that's helpful for me. I'm trying to find a month where I pitched like a lot of things. Okay. I'm going to say like April, April, 2020. I'm looking at all the articles that I pitched that month. I pitched 17 articles that month, mm-hmm. which is, I'd say a median level, maybe, maybe on the higher end. I don't know. Higher end for me right now, certainly. And how many did I get? Nine. I got nine out of 17 articles, yeah, which I would really say good. is, yeah, which Very I high. would say is, yeah, pretty high. Um, and I never want to say this without um, explaining context. So first of all, think that's very contextual to the amount of time that I had at that period, my mental health, and honestly, me like pushing myself past my capacity, which I try mm-hmm. not to do anymore. I'm much more conscientious about not doing that now. And it's a hard thing to stick to. It also, um, you know, you need to consider the factor of was a pitching outlets that I already have contacts at, which mm-hmm. the answer is for at least some of them, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of other factors, but I think those are the main ones. And the thing is that I got 
how much is nine out of 17? I guess it's almost half. It's almost 50%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reason I got that is, is because most of them, I'm trying to look most of them, not all of them, but like 60% of them were places that I had already worked for and worked with those mm-hmm. editors. And the other ones were for outlets that I'd been previously in touch with editors and um, they knew me and they liked my work and they knew they wanted to work with me at some point. And, and I, you know, I just, I, then I used that opportunity to pitch them. Um, so that's another piece of advice that I actually think is really important is just again, along with like being a kind and genuine person and reaching out to people, just like talk to people and get to know people as humans without any ulterior motives of like, I want to get in this magazine next month. So I'm going to start a relationship with this editor. Don't do that. Please Mm -hmm. don't do that. Usually the people who do that end up coming off as like big jerks, whether they know it or not. Um, I always tell people, even if an editor hasn't accepted a single goddamn one of your pitches, keep pitching because it will tell them that this isn't a one-off thing for you. You care about this topic or this outlet or this thing, and you're not going to give up. And maybe they'll never accept a pitch, but maybe they will. Maybe the, t- the third time or the 10th time or the 20th time you send a pitch, they will. This has certainly happened to me. Um, and just be willing to like put in the work to build relationships with the people in media. Because again, coming back to the fact that media can be so competitive and horrible and people can be snarky editors are people too and they want to get good pitches and they want to work with kind people and they want to work with people who value them as both editors and human beings Mm -hmm. and if you keep pitching them and you try to build a relationship with them even outside of pitching just responding to their tweets just you know not in like a creepy or overbearing or boundary crossing way, <laughs> but responding to their tweets or liking them or sharing their stories or um, just interacting with them and engaging with them as human beings, that does something. And all of the relationships that I built with editors and outlets have been because that's what I did. And again, part of that is just because I'm autistic and that's how I naturally interact with the world around me. Um, But like, that's really how I started building my platform and getting bylines in media is I just talk to people. I just like their tweets and I respond to Mm -hmm. them and I share their articles and I let them know what things mean to me and, you know, and, and yeah, and just share their articles and say nice things about them because that's how I genuinely feel. You, you're also represented by a literary agency, Jean-Claude Nesbitt. Um, can you just tell me a bit about how you got representation? So how it usually works just for people who don't know is essentially you will write up like a book proposal or something smaller. Maybe it depends on what the agency or the agent wants. That's like a description of your project and it has all these parts and you compare what titles it's like, what books it's like, what you would talk about, what the title would be, like all these things, what your platform is, how many followers on Twitter you have, which is, again, so archaic and and bullshit. It shouldn't matter. But um, 
So that's usually the route you go. I did not do that um, because I did not believe in myself. It wasn't because I was like, huh, I'm too good for this process. It was like, oh my God, I don't have anything to say. Who the hell would want to represent me? Um, again, I will say that I didn't really realize until more recently in my career that people care about what I have to say and that I am considered someone who does good writing and journalism, which is like wild to me. Um, every day I like wake up and I'm like, oh my God, people want to hear what I have to say. That's weird. And like, maybe they're wrong, but okay. <laughs> um, but uh, all of a sudden, after I'd been thinking about this for a few weeks, like four different literary agents just reached out to me. Uh, and that is rare. <laughs> I want to stress that. That's not like a thing that happens. I think it's because I have a lot of bylines and I'm very active on Twitter and I am always talking about the things that I'm passionate about. Um, and so what happened is essentially I spoke with a few of them, wasn't really feeling it. Um, from being best friends with my friend John, I know how you're supposed to feel about a lit agent. And, and I also have so many friends who are in the process of writing books or have written books that I've just had a lot of conversations with people about what it should feel like when mm -hmm. you're, when you have the, the right working relationship with someone. And I also kind of know what that should feel like from working with editors at, at magazines and publications and outlets, right? Because I, um, the editors I've enjoyed working with the least have been the people who treat it as not a collaborative process. And they're like, you're going to send me this work and I'm going to cut things and I'm going to publish it. And then I'm going to tell you whether I think you did a good job or not. Mm -hmm. I hate that kind of process. And I don't like working with those editors. And for the most part, I really don't work with those editors. The editors I like working with are the ones who are collaborative, who ask me questions, who let me ask them questions. And we're really working on like crafting this piece together to make it the best it can be because both of our perspectives matter. Mm -hmm. And that is how it should also feel with a literary agent. Um, and I think, you know, someone should ask you questions and say things to you that make you think about the things that you want to write in a different way or give you new, fresh perspective or inspire you even, you know. Um, I had no idea what kinds of books. That's not totally true. I, I had a very, very vague idea of what kinds of books I would want to write when I had an initial meeting with Mina, the person who has ended up being my literary agent for the last year, almost year, since February 2020. Um, and I didn't, I didn't like announce it or anything. I didn't make a big thing. I literally just put it in my Twitter file. <laughs> um, and then sometimes at midnight, I'll tweet. I'm like, oh my God, guys, I'm working on a book. It's nuts. Um, but I had this conversation with her and it was the first, it, no, it wasn't. It was like the second um, conversation I had with the lit agent because several had reached out to me and I was scheduling like staggered meetings. It was right before the pandemic. We were supposed to meet in person um, and then the pandemic happened. So we didn't. So I still haven't met her in person, which is a really weird experience because I mm -hmm. feel like I know her so well and we text all the time and She's so great and she's so supportive. Um, but it was this experience where we had this meeting and it was just an initial meeting and she had reached out to me on Twitter. She DM'd me and she was like, hey, I really love your writing 
and I am building my client list right now. And I'm wondering if you would like to get coffee and chat about potentially having a literary agent. So sorry to just like randomly slide into your DMs like this. I don't want to bother you, but like, let me know if you're interested. And this terrified me and I immediately freaked out because I was like, I have imposter syndrome and I was like, what's happening? But then I was like, oh my God, I like texted some of my best friends and I was like, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't know this was possible, but it's happening. And they were like, okay, like set up a meeting. And I responded to her and I was like, yeah, I want to have a meeting. It ended up getting postponed and not like happening in person because of COVID. But then we had a meeting at like the beginning of March or something and or like the end of February and um and we just I have very good intuition I generally think that everyone has some compass inside of themselves that's good intuition that they know what's good for them and and what isn't Mm -hmm. you know like a gut feeling and I have really good intuition and when I meet someone and we really hit it off, I like know immediately whether they're going to be an important person in my life or something. And we just, we met via like FaceTime or something. And I immediately knew that this was the person who I wanted to represent me because she was so candid and so honest and so kind. And immediately it was very, um, clear to me that she just understood who I am and what I'm capable of and understands my work mm-hmm. on multiple levels from reading my articles. And she asked me if I had, you know, the meeting started out with us kind of making small talk. She asked me, if I had any book ideas and, you know, I had very vague ones and we just kind of tossed out ideas. And by the end of that meeting, which was like maybe an hour, I think somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour, I not only had one book that I was really excited to work on, but two. And she had given me all these ideas for how they might work and encouraged me and been like, Ellie, these are amazing ideas. Like you need to write these books. You deserve to write these books. And these are, you know, people are going to love these. These are, are going to be really important books. And she was, and something that's like a love language for me is affirmations, personal affirmations and like professional affirmations. And it means so much to me when people give me affirmations and not ego stroking ones. Literally, they're just honest mm-hmm. and they let you know when you're doing good work or when they care about you or, when you've done something special or, or, or just good. And, you know, she just gave me these affirmations and I like immediately knew you're the person who gets my work. And, um, we've been working together ever since. And I wake up at five 30 every morning and I make my coffee and I work on my book. And, um, because what I'm working on right now is my debut book and it is like a memoir. Um, The process is a little bit different and she just wants to make sure that I have a lot written to show to editors before starting to like pitch and query editors essentially Mm -hmm. to get the book deal. But um, 
I know that I have editors who are interested in working with me and it's been a really enriching experience so far. It's not always like that. Certainly querying takes a lot of work. I happen to have so many bylines and be so goddamn loud on the internet all the time that I had people reach out to me. I think that is very rare. I do feel very lucky and grateful and humbled that that was my experience. Um, I still can't believe it was my experience. It won't be like that for everyone, but I would say don't be afraid to query agents and the right people or the right person who is like, and I don't say right as in like the best. I just mean like the person who's right to represent you and who gets your work and will like stand up for you and advocate for you and be a good, good agent for you is someone who is kind, clearly mm -hmm. shows interest in wanting to work with you and asks you questions and, and answers questions and just really wants to collaborate with you. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think everyone has better intuition than they think and you'll know, um, you'll know. So I think those are important things to keep in mind, but my situation, um, was more rare I think yeah and um is there anything you can say about the the project the memoir you're working on or is it kind of under wraps at the moment I'm fine with talking about it um a little bit I like I have mentioned vaguely at several points during this conversation um I've had a pretty traumatic life in some ways and I I have a lot of perspective on surviving trauma and surviving the world, which is a very rough place, especially as like me, a very tender, sensitive, earnest person. Um, and my entire life, I've talked about my experiences and how I survived them. Um, kind of just through like, my refined perspective and I have a lot of hope and um, I really prioritize joy and friendship um, and community and um, you know I don't think my trauma defines me and I just think that a lot of people for whatever reason think that I have a very mature and interesting perspective on these things and so my entire life, people have been telling me to write a book, write a book. You know, like I would tell a story about my life and someone would be like, Ellie, have you ever thought about like writing a memoir or writing a book? And I would be like, I don't really think anyone needs, needs that. I don't, you know, it's, I don't think anyone needs that. Um, which is not me being self-deprecating. That was just me like, I think having imposter syndrome and also not really having found my voice yet or what I have to contribute to conversations in the world. And now that I'm older and more mature and have done more work and have lived more life and been through many more horrible experiences <laughs> and um, some in media and recognized that um, I do have important perspective. Um, I do think it's you know important for me to write a book. And so my memoir is not defined by and not about my trauma, but certainly touches on the fact that um, that is where I came from, you know. Um, I can't deny and I don't want to hide that I am a person who has experienced and survived poverty, houselessness, um, abuse, sexual assault. I mean, probably more things, but I can't think of them at the moment. Um, and I'm here and I've lived and 
again, community and kindness um, and treating everyone like a human being is such, uh, is so important to me. And the book is, is not about my trauma. It's not, um, I'm not defined by it and neither is the book, but essentially my memoir considers the fact that and the ways that people in our community make us who we are and make it possible for us to survive or not and how we all like need each other and we all um owe each other something you know at the end of the day I don't I don't think you owe someone a text back um I don't think you owe someone a job I don't think you owe someone um putting their feelings over yours you know all these things we don't owe each other but there certainly are things we owe each other and that is community and that is kindness and basic respect and decency i always say i will be kind to everyone who isn't like a nazi um you know we owe each other basic respect and decency and so much of the way we live our lives is informed by this individualism and we see it reflected through self-care, through this idea that you take care of yourself or that you are competing against someone else in media or any number of things. Like we just always, I think because of capitalism, see ourselves as being in competition with other people. And I just have never seen things that way. And I don't think I ever will, um, no matter how jaded I might become by media or or worn down by the world. I have always seen things as I am here to help other people and other people are here to help me. Um, I had a fantastic therapist in college who changed my life and certainly saved my life in many ways. And there was a period of time where I was houseless and I did not have, I was working multiple jobs, but all of the money that I was getting, I was using to pay off college. And I didn't want to spend money on shampoo and conditioner. And I didn't want to spend money on tampons for myself because I was scared that if I spent that money on myself, I wouldn't have it for something else I needed, which breaks my heart. And I try really hard not to be in that mindset now, even when I'm struggling with money. And my therapist at the time, and this is not something that therapists are supposed to do. Technically, this is like a, a breach of, of, like it's a conflict of interest, which I think is silly and archaic. But you are not supposed to uh, informally or like, um, socially like fraternize with your patients. You're not supposed to buy them things. You're not supposed to go out to get coffee mm-hmm. with them, not in a session, you know, all these things you're not supposed to do. And we never, you know, did any of those things, but she gave me free therapy for all of college. Um, I won't say her name cause I don't want her to get in trouble, <laughs> but she gave me free therapy for all of college when I couldn't afford it. And she several times bought me tampons and shampoo and conditioner because she knew I needed them and I wouldn't do it for myself. And she would bring me food and she would get me coffee. And she was just a kind person to me. And she knew how much trauma I had come from and gone through. And 
this was still very early on in my healing journey. I mean, honestly, I would say I'm still very early on in my healing journey. I have a lot that I need to heal from and that I've worked to heal from, but she knew how difficult my life had been. And she knew that I needed kindness and that I needed chosen family and someone to lean on and someone to instill kindness in myself, for myself. And when she bought me the tampons and the shampoo and conditioner that first time, I remember I was sitting in her office and I felt so guilty I felt so bad because I'd been conditioned in my life to not let people do nice things for me and to put everyone else before myself and to feel bad if someone does something kind for me because they've just used their resources and their energy on me, um, which is, you know, a symptom of being an abuse survivor. Um, And she gave them to me and I felt so bad and I was like, I can't take these. Why did you get these for me? You don't owe me anything. Because that was the lesson that I had taken from most of the rest of my life and how people had treated me. And she looked at me and she said very softly and kindly, Ellie, we all belong to each other. And what are we going to do if we don't recognize that? I belong to you and you belong to me. And not in an ownership way, but just that I owe you whatever I can do for you. And you owe me whatever you can do for me. And you owe the next person and that person in your class and that professor and this young person who needs the mentor, whatever you can give Mm -hmm. to them. And that, that she said, has stayed with me for eight years. Um, and I think about it every day and I think that's a very large part of what my memoir is about. It's not about me really at all. It's about the lessons that I've learned from the people who have entered my life and have helped me and have helped me heal and have been my community and my chosen family. And it's about this idea that we all belong to each other and we all do owe each other a lot. Um, and what do we owe? each other and how do we navigate our relationships and how do we build community and why does it matter in the first place? I'm really pleased for you to have got that opportunity because that's such um, such a big deal to be doing a memoir in your 20s, you know? Oh yeah, I know it's a lot of <laughs> pressure. I feel like I'm going to fuck it up, but I'm trying. No, I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you'll be absolutely fine. Um, just to finish things off, what general advice would you give to someone that wants to start their career in journalism? I think beside what I've, besides what I've already said about, you know, just mm-hmm. being like kind and treating people like human beings and not being a jerk who is acting like you're competing with everyone is just really think to yourself, why do I want to do this? What am I adding to the world? How am I making it better? Why am I the person who needs to do this work? And I don't know. I guess I'd say ask yourself how you want to impact people because I can always tell where people's journalism is coming from 
And some of the people whose journalism and writing I like the least are some of the biggest names in media. And I don't like their work because I can tell that it's about them and it's an ego thing Mm -hmm. or it's just work to them. And, you know, there, there, there are some people like that who are great writers and I just don't care about their writing. All of the, the writers and journalists that I like are the ones who are clearly writing this story because they are so invested in this community and the impact that they have or in doing a service or uh, helping someone understand something or giving someone a platform to, to tell their story or uh, speak their mind or stand up for their community or whatever it is. You know, I can always tell when people are writing stories like that. And that's why I, I don't write any stories that aren't like that unless it's for like you know, like trending news for Refinery29. Those are, you know, I don't always choose those, mm-hmm. but I certainly don't pitch any stories that um, that aren't something that I care about. And I think that's something that people neglect a lot and is a huge part of more traditional journalism that, you know, people just want kind of fame and glory or they want to write about something because they want to write about it. And so much of media sucks and there are so many issues with the media we put out into the world and the ways that we've shaped narratives and some of the most harmful messages and ideas and news pieces have been because people are not intentional and they don't know why they're doing it and they don't have specific reasons and they're not sticking up for a certain community. They're just kind of doing a job. And I can always tell and I think a lot of people can tell. Um, So my advice would be really ask yourself why you want to do this. Um, and don't do it if it's just like about fame or like having a byline. I mean, I'm sure you can. And if you're a white man, you'll go pretty far (laughs) and congrats to you. But why do you want to do this? Who are you? What voice, what experiences can you contribute? How is it going to help people? Who do you want to impact and how do you want to impact them? That was journalist and communications consultant Ellie Bell. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Literelli. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to support the podcast, you can give a small donation on coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash She's Creative Pod. You can find the podcast on social media at She's Creative Pod and I'm on social media at underscore Claire Hutch. See you next time.